If you love what you hear, check out our authors Andrea Stewart and N.A. Fulton on Amazon.com, and be sure to subscribe to our Dark Romance Novels and Stories podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Learn more about us at audioiron.com. The Demon King, by Morgan Huxley. Find more great stories at audioiron.com. Chapter 15 When Mary woke, her arm was on fire. She sat bolt upright and found Stuart in an armchair beside her. He put down the leather-bound volume he was reading and said, Do you need something for the pain? Yes, she gasped. It hurts so much. Her free hand moved to the metal band around her arm, slid it half an inch toward her wrist. It left a white imprint of behind. Stuart rose and handed her a glass of clear liquid that had been waiting for her on a bedside table. It's very fast acting, he said. The doctor sent it. She took the bitter draught in one gulp cradling her arm against her body. It felt like a hot, hard, leg of lamb. Such a deformed and diseased object simply couldn't be part of her body. Let me see, he said. He came to sit on the edge of her bed, then he took her arm and said something in his strange musical tongue. He ran his hands over the swollen flesh. Mary heard herself conversing with him, though she had no idea what she said. When he was done touching her, the pain had subsided to something that made her want to weep rather than scream. Stuart pressed a work roughened palm to her forehead. Still hot, he said. Let's hope the medicine the doctor gave you works. Then he straightened to stand beside the bed. Are you hungry? She nodded. She looked at the heavy white curtains over the windows. The room was dark, but she didn't know if it was midnight or dawn. How long had she been here? It's just after two in the morning, he said. You haven't been sleeping long. Eight days, she said. In eight days, she would be free of this manacle and the thing within her would be gone. It may get easier. Her power fades hour by hour. He picked up a phone by her bed. What do you want? Soup? Sandwich? She nodded. Why did she feel so grateful to him when he was the author of her misfortune? He had deceived her, had humiliated and tortured her. Yet she felt he was the only human on earth who understood how she felt or knew what she needed. Having delivered his instructions to the kitchen and returned the phone to its cradle, Stuart subsided back into his chair. I don't know how to pass the time, he said. It seems our lessons are at a premature end. Perhaps you could tell me what the purpose of all this is, she said. Why have you used me so ill? My explaining things to you hasn't seemed to help you very much, he said, resting his head against his hand. You refuse to believe the evidence of your own eyes, deny any information I give you, and come up with your own answers which seem to do you no good at all. You've never told me the truth, she said. You constantly lie to me. He shook his head as if in resignation. I never did. I explained the oath you were taking. I tried to instruct you in your role. You never said anything about this. She held up her arm. I never told you that you would wear a bracelet for a fortnight. Would you have cared? He asked. You tried to use my mother for this thing you are doing to me, but she ran away. Now you are using me instead. And what are we doing? He asked. What is it, exactly, that you think we are doing to you? I don't know. She said. Shall I tell you? He asked. I can tell you the truth, and then you can make up any story you would rather believe as you always do. Frankly, I'm a little tired of trying to convince you of anything. If you came up with any kind of a functional lie, I'd just agree with it. Fine. She said. Let's hear your story. My mother served my father exactly as you were serving me. He sat forward. In the weeks before I was conceived, she drew down the moon, just as you did. That ornament you have on your arm tied a lady to this place. To free herself, our lady bound Acheron into Arthur. Do you understand? No, said Mary. The goddess within you threads souls into bodies. 
All life on Earth comes from her power to make souls from the astral plane animate flesh. Our ritual draws her down into a woman so she will perform this function. She makes it possible for the Dark Lord to live among men. She creates a gate between worlds. Acheron's gate, said Mary. Our Lady and the Dark Lord conceived me within my mother's womb in preparation for a time when Arthur would be no more. Soon it will be her power that allows Acheron to live in me. You are out of your mind, she said. He shrugged. My mother was bred and educated for her role. But, unknown to us, she came under the influence of the outer world. In the hours before your birth, she killed Arthur and tried to kill me. She gave birth on some London street while we searched high and low for her here. She killed herself on the steps of St. Anne's she said. Then it struck her. My God. We share a mother. Stuart ignored her shocked words. Arthur, struck from the world before his time, left us without Acheron's direct guidance. It thus took a very long time to find you. Although you were not educated to play your role, it is a role you were literally born to play. James appeared with a tray with two meals. He placed it on the bedside table and left a moment later, having never looked at either of them. It is not so different from the lower, said Stuart, taking a sandwich from the tray. They ride their willing servants. I am not at all willing, she said. Which brings us to our second issue, said Stuart. You willingly signed a contract and willingly took an oath. We now compel you to honor that oath for your sake as much as ours. No one wants you to die as your mother did. We have been working hard to avoid that since you were taken. Why are you not willing to follow through on your oath to us when you have so much to gain if you do, and everything to lose if you don't? Because this is wrong, she said. It's evil. We have been drawing Acheron into this world for thousands of years, said Stuart. You are not going to stop us. My mother almost did, she said. She is dead and you are here, said Stuart, dropping his linen napkin on the tray. How successful was she? Mary wondered if she should end her life. Would she go that far to stop them? What did she have to live for anyway? David was gone, her house was an open grave for misguided dreams. Margaret had died trying to help her. She had nothing, no one. Maybe her life's purpose was to stop this demon from entering the world. Stuart shook his head in disbelief. Your intentions are so clear you might as well be screaming them. You can't make me do this, she said. I assure you we can, he said. He left the room, and a few minutes later James reappeared. He watched Mary eat without comment, then took the tray and put it in the hall. The IV was empty, so he removed the needle from her good arm, and took the bottle and bag he'd hung on the post of the bed away. Then, moments later, he returned to sit in the chair by the fire. With the illumination of a small lamp that sat on a table near him, she saw him begin to read. She settled back into her pillows and pondered her predicament. There had to be some way to escape. The next morning the doctor returned. He examined her arm for several minutes and reapplied the sticking plasters. Better, but still not what I'd like to see, he said at last. Help me, she demanded. I'm a prisoner here. He knows, said James. As a brother in our order, he accepts his role and yours. How is that possible? She demanded. Because it is, said James. Will that be all, doctor? For the time being, he said. James walked him to the door, then came back to stand beside the bed. Is there something I can get you? He asked Mary. How can you do this to me? She demanded. This goes against everything a psychiatrist should believe in. James turned to pick up the phone, waited a moment, then said something into it. A moment later Stuart, hair still damp from a shower, appeared. He was informally dressed in a sweater, shirt and jeans. With a nod he sent James away. I'm relatively indestructible, he said. Your power, or rather Our Lady's power, is waning very quickly now, but I can't let James join Ahmed in the hospital. He's making a speedy recovery, by the way. I don't care she said. Do you feel well enough to get out of bed? He asked. You could walk around the house with me, search for ways to escape, and look for others to help you. She struggled upright, remembered she was naked, and settled back again. Ah, he said. I could thwart any plan simply by keeping you without clothes. Those nuns schooled you well. Have you no shame? She demanded.
You are my brother. Not technically true, but you may believe what you wish. With the pronouncement he walked over to a large wardrobe and returned with a shirt, sweater, jeans, socks and underwear all in her size. Get dressed. He turned his back as she slid out of bed and quickly pulled on her clothes. Everything was new, expensive, and soft. When she was dressed she smelled of lavender. Stuart turned around to face her as she was trying to tie her shoes one-handed. Here, he said, kneeling. Let me help you. As he tied the laces on her trainers, he said, now you are ready for that mad sprint to London I'm sure you have in mind. Don't mock me. Don't be so mockable, he replied. Let's wander around our house. What? As much yours as mine sister. He said the word as if it were a joke. He led her out of the room, and they followed the large stairway into what used to be the sanctuary of the church. From there he led her across the wide expanse of soft carpet to a wooden door. He threw it open to reveal two stories of books lining all four walls of the room. If you were the practicing which you seemed to be when I found you, this library would send a thrill up your spine, he said. This is the largest library of occult science in the world, with many volumes written by our own members over hundreds of years. You can find all our grimoires here, all our spells and incantations. My tarot cards, she said, came from our vault two stories below. Many magical things reside there. I might choose to share them with the witch and the Dark Lord's consort, but of course as our enemy, you likely won't live long enough for a tour. Now you are threatening me? she asked in disbelief. I am explaining the predetermined outcome for a course of action you are considering, Stuart said. He pointed at a volume open on the large table in the middle of the room. This book from the Middle Ages tells how to lift a child from the womb of a mother without killing her. Mary moved forward to study the image of a sleeping child, set to be born breech, inside a uterus. She could see a blade exposed to fire, and another displaying an incision, then the body open and organs removed. Written in 1104, he said. Other volumes show the elliptical orbits of the planets, the position of the stars, and how to construct a telescope. Long before Galileo our society understood the clockwork of the universe. Science, she said. Not magic. Science is magic without meaning. Magic is science without understanding. She turned, walking out of the room and away from Stuart's defense of the indefensible. Once in what used to be the sanctuary of the abbey she turned toward massive double doors. She could see clouds through the tall windows, as if it were misty outside. Perhaps she could walk to town. Stuart fell into step beside her as she made for the doors, then actually opened them for her. She noted that they were ten inches of solid oak with a core of metal inside. Clearly they were built to protect a fortress. Once through the doors she found herself on a tree-shaded terrace with steps that led down to the dark asphalt drive and the road through the woods to the abbey's main gate. She began walking toward the stairs but Stuart caught her good arm. Let's try running away tomorrow, he said. Your strength will fail if you try today and that will provide us with hardly any entertainment at all. You and I can walk on the sand today. You can contemplate an escape via our beach. As he ushered her around the corner of the building she saw an astonishing view of a private bay in the top of a stone staircase leading down a cliff. Listen carefully, sister, he said. We are on a peninsula. We have many tiny coves and attractive beaches below. At this time of year the water is warm close to shore but it's much colder when you reach deep water. It's a seven-mile swim to the nearest village and, when you're feeling up to it, perhaps we can make it together. As they began their walk down the stairs he said, I improved these steps a few years back, he said. They used to be made of wood and natural stone, but I wanted something more durable. As a member of the society, I hope you approve of the 18 million pounds I invested in what will never be more than a personal indulgence for the fortunate few who visit our enclave. She pulled her arm away and began walking down the steps without his assistance. The view was truly magnificent. She could see for miles out to sea could just make out little coves that lined the shoreline, and could see a narrow strip of beach that ran right along the edge of the peninsula in either direction. He said, at high tide that beach goes away and the water fills the little coves. So, if you decide to take this path to freedom make sure you can travel about twenty miles, on foot, in the six or so hours where the tide can be called low. Alternatively you must find a way to acquire a boat. 
Turning to him she said, I have done nothing to deserve this cruelty beyond trusting you. That was my only mistake. She turned her back on him and forced herself to walk as quickly as she could down the beautiful but winding stairs. Each step she took jolted her arm, and it occurred to her she was in no fit condition to swim anywhere, or run anywhere, or to make any kind of aided escape. But she had to remain defiant because she could not, would not, be party to whatever monstrous ritual they had in mind. At long last she reached the bottom stair and she looked left and right along the beach. It managed to be both beautiful and horrifying in its isolation. Mind getting your feet wet? he asked. It was the first thing he had said to her in several minutes and his manner seemed less jovial as if her last words had given him pause for thought. I can show you something remarkable. You've come all this way and I think you'll agree it's worth the effort. He sat down on the bottom step and removed his shoes, placing the expensive loafers and dark socks on the wide rail of the stair. Sighing, she moved to sit beside him. She slipped her shoes and socks off and left them on the sand. Then he led her along the beach toward the abbey, and she followed him around the corner into a little cove that had an opening into a cave at its heart. Water ran from the cave to the shore creating a little river to the sea. If you do manage to bring our ancient society down, he said, make sure you bring the National Trust here. It is under the abbey because the church was built over it well over a thousand years ago. Before that other places of worship were here. This has always been a holy place because of what is hidden inside. As they walked through the cave with rough rock walls, the narrow channel turned left and right until eventually it opened into a cavern made of what looked like amber and violet glass. It was like one of those geode rocks you broke open to find crystals inside. The cavern was filled with warm sea water, and it was illuminated by an opening to the sun that lay directly at its center. Near where they stood she saw a larger-than-life statue of a kneeling woman, hands raised as hers had once been. She was drawing down the moon. The beautiful leonine head was turned in permanent rapture toward the sky. You looked like that, he said. As your high priest, I was the only one allowed to see. She turned to look at him. This temple of the moon long predates the Romans. She's guarded this place since a millennia before Christ. She said nothing, staring at the statue and trying not to hear what he was saying. This couldn't be real. Demons, cults, all of it was insane. Could this be anything other than rich men playing a terrible game? How on earth had she, raised in a convent, have found herself embroiled in whatever terrible thing this was? In the center of our bay, two hundred meters down they'll find the Temple of Avalon. I've dived there. King Arthur sleeps in a crypt in the heart of the city. Mary found herself sinking to the damp sand. This was too much. It was all too much to take in. Could any of it be true? And yet here she was. Stuart moved to sit near the statue. The mother of Arthur's child Modred was his sister Morgaze. Arthur was called the High King because he united the pagan and the Roman dynasties. Did you know that? Of course not, she said wearily. The Egyptians were also ruled by a brother and sister. Osiris and Isis were brother and sister and she gave birth to Horus. This is madness, she said. Whatever you say, it always will be madness. There are two universes, mortal and immortal, and they are atoms apart. Acheron and Our Lady live in one and we live in the other. Thousands of years ago Acheron found a way to step into this world by creating a gate. I am that gate. I was forged in the woman that bore both of us. So were you. Neither of us is human. We are born and bred for the roles we are set to play. The cold rush of panic washed over Mary as she stared at the beautiful maniac who sat just a few feet away. That's not true she said. It's impossible. I have forty-eight chromosomes and some rather unique bones in my back that argue otherwise, he said. But I am human, she said. Of course I am. You have the right number of chromosomes, but you have been heavily engineered. By a demon, she said, unable to hide her disbelief and scorn. By a deity four years after I was born. Acheron created Arthur's replacement, then he made a replacement for our mother. She bore us both as he ordained. Mary rose to her feet, keeping her eyes lowered so he would not see the revulsion and terror in her eyes. I tell you this so you understand that neither of us has a choice, said Stuart. Your mother tried to run away and he found her. He found you. The society exists to serve him and it has existed for a very long time. It is very powerful. I can't believe any of this, she said. 
Then she turned back the way they had come and began walking out of the cave. Once she was outside she picked up her shoes and socks and began the long march up to the top of the steps. She would walk to the top, then walk down the drive, then get through the gate, then go back to town. She would get on a plane and go to David in Japan. She would put all this madness behind her forever. She could live with nothing less. Before she was halfway to the top she had to stop. Chest heaving, arm throbbing, she found her legs couldn't carry her a step farther. Without asking her permission Stuart scooped her up into his arms. Despite her struggles he carried her easily to the top of the steps and set her down. Then he whispered something, the words somehow like music, and she felt her body relax and her pain subside. It was if Stuart could command her body without speaking to her mind, and the idea both terrified and enraged her. What did you say? She demanded. He looked at her, bemused. You used to be able to understand what Our Lady and I said to one another. I suppose, as her strength wanes, that capacity is failing. I told her it wouldn't be long now before we let her go home. I don't believe a word you say, she said grimly. I am going to walk into town. Stuart said something else in his musical language. It was the last thing Mary heard before the world went away. Chapter 16 I've given her another round of antibiotics, said the doctor. It would be better if she didn't go on any more long walks. He had drawn Stuart and James out of Mary's room so their conversation would not wake the sleeping girl. I can think of a hundred things she ought not to do, said Stuart conversationally. One worries about blood poisoning, said the doctor. She needs time to heal. She has the ritual to move through and then she must transition into a healthy pregnancy. Perhaps not, said Stuart. Such things are not set in stone. He noted that the doctor and James both went white at what he was implying. While Stuart did not commune with the Dark Lord, as Mary said she had done from time to time, there was no greater student than Stuart of Akian's past desires and behaviors. For almost twenty years Stuart had been called upon to rule in his stead and to prepare for the opening of the gate his mother had slammed shut by murdering his father and killing herself. Acheron will decide what to do with her when he returns to the world, he said. In the meantime, we will help her, as best we can, to understand and accept her position. And, as she embodies Our Lady, we will treat her with kindness and respect. Is that understood? Yes, said James. It is replied the doctor. Stuart let himself back into the bedroom and moved to sit in the chair beside Mary's bed. In centuries past this would have been a time of revels for him as the anointed. Had things gone differently, Arthur would be alive and through him Acheron would be governing the society. Stuart would be a prince about to become king. Fornication, adventure, anything and everything would have been offered to him on a silver plate. Gifts in reward for his sacrifice and in the hope that he would remember the giver when Acheron resided within him. But here he sat with Mary, standing guard over her and her celestial guest because they were Acheron's way into the world. His duty was to protect Acheron and the society from their greatest risk, a willful, young woman who refused to believe in magic. Hours after her walk on the beach, Mary awoke to find herself back in bed with an four draining into her arm. Stuart sat in an armchair at her side reading a book. Please, let me go, she said. Why can't you do that? He closed his book, stood up, and moved to sit beside her in the big bed. I wish I could, he said. I do understand the desire to make your own decisions and chart your own course in this world. It's what you were taught to expect. It is medieval to have your life laid out for you and all the important decisions made long before you were born. Stuart sounded sincere in his somber words. She had considered him her jailer, but perhaps he was a fellow prisoner. Do you want to escape too? She asked. Why can't we both run away? At fifteen, Catherine, the young princess of Aragon, born a daughter to a monarch who was queen in her own right, was betrothed to Arthur. He was eldest son of the first Tudor king of England. Catherine came from Spain with a tiny retinue, she married a sickly boy, and he subsequently died. Henry VII refused to send Catherine home because he had to keep her dowry and the Spanish alliance to protect his kingdom. Years later, when he died, Catherine married Arthur's younger brother, Henry VIII, said Stuart. Choice did not enter into many of their decisions. We are not Tudor royalty, she protested. As if he had not understood her, Stuart went on. 
Catherine had a daughter and suffered many miscarriages in search of a male heir, as Henry slept through many of her ladies-in-waiting. He eventually decided he wanted to marry the one noblewoman who refused to fornicate with him before marriage. Catherine spent the rest of her life a true prisoner. She died praying the madman she had married wouldn't murder his own daughter. We don't live in those times anymore, she said. Most people don't, he said. But you, I, and the society do. You and I can't run away. Acheron, this creature you think owns us, he's gone now. They can't bring him back without you and me. Do you want to subject yet another generation to this obscenity? Stuart eyed her for a long moment and said, Yes, I do. And for what it is worth, what you are asking is impossible. Exasperated, Mary turned away from him. This place was a prison. It was a gilded cage where the society kept its sacrificial victims. She tugged at the ivy connected to her arm, irritably. Call someone to get this needle out of me, she said. I am tired of everything happening without my consent. Sadly, you must be patient for an hour or two, said Stuart. I've been given good reason for you to have a second dose of antibiotics, and if you want to pretend to escape some more, you need to get rid of the infection you gave yourself with your sculpting tools. Having delivered his verdict, he turned to pick up the bedside phone. Mary listened to him order food and wine and when he returned the phone to its cradle she began again. What if you just remove this bracelet and let whatever is inside me go? Mary, I assure you that is not going to happen, said Stuart firmly. The only thing that can change in this situation is your attitude. I don't understand this at all, she said sharply. Why on earth are you doing this? You are grown men, world leaders, wealthy beyond belief. Because Acheron has counseled a thousand kings. He knew Alexander, Caesar, and Constantine as men. He is Prometheus the Lightbringer. We are not opening the way for a monster, as you seem determined to believe. We are accepting the help of a deity who has served mankind for many millennia, he said. Well, this is far more insanity than I bargained for, said Mary dismissively. You have to let me go. This is exactly what you bargained for, he said. Not only were you born and bred to play your part, you agreed to it in writing, then swore to it before witnesses. The deal is done. A moment later James entered the room with the food Stuart had requested. He looked more relaxed than he had on the previous day. Perhaps because he was less worried that she might send another thunderbolt through his chest. He placed the tray on the table beside Stuart then tipped the open bottle of wine into two glasses. How is Ahmed? Stuart asked him as he took one glass and offered the other to Mary. He's doing well, said James. Both his lungs were punctured, but he is on the mend. He will be here in seven days to perform his role in the ascension. Seven days, Mary thought. I have just seven days to escape. Four hours, Mary thought. I have just four hours to escape. What on earth was she going to do? She was seated alone on a long bench in the garden over the subterranean parking lot. The hot sun beat down from the sky and she could hear the roar of the surf from the sea below the cliffs on the other side of the abbey. Over the last few days she had wandered the house and grounds and, over time, Stuart had given up being her constant companion. She felt certain she had fooled him into believing she had become docile and completely resigned to her fate. Hours ago she had asked for tea on the terrace. James had brought it to her, sat nearby while she slowly sipped cup after cup, and a few moments ago he had carried the heavy tea tray away. Slowly, without looking around, she rose and walked down the steps to the long asphalt drive. She had purposely dressed in sandals and a flowing flowered dress rather than clothing in which she could easily run. She wanted everyone to believe she had given up her attempts at escape. But now, as she strolled along the drive toward the gate, her heart was pounding with both excitement and fear. Would someone come after her? Would her strength fail her as Stuart had predicted? Walking out of this nightmare couldn't be easy, but it had to be possible. Sooner than she expected she found her way blocked by the large, black metal gate emblazoned with an S. With no way to open it, she walked into the woods along the attached fence. She saw tall, thick, metal rods were driven deep into the ground just a hand's breadth apart. She saw no way to get around them, no way to get through them, and no way to get over them. She had followed the long line of posts for a quarter of a mile only to discover it ended at the edge of a cliff. There was no way to get around the last post and out of the society's compound. 
More to the point, Stuart was leaning against the fence as if he had known all along that this was where she would come. She gave him a wide berth as she approached the precipice, then looked down to discover a sheer 200-foot fall to a water-filled cove. If she leapt past him and dropped into that nothingness, would she die? You would be shocked at how little of you needs to be working for the ritual to work, Stuart said. In any case, I am not going to let jump. He moved forward, and despite her initial reluctance, he took her arm. He led her back through the woods at a leisurely pace. On the drive, a few feet from the gate, she found an expensive red sports car waiting. Stuart walked to the driver's door, opened it, and gestured for her to get inside. Once she was installed, he shut the door and walked to the other door and let himself into the vehicle. Seven gears, he said as he picked up her hand. He placed it on the stick shift and said, now engage the clutch. When she did, he swiftly ran her through all the gears the car had to offer, naming them one by one. Leaving her in first gear, he said, now let up slowly on the clutch as you apply the gas. The car rolled forward, passing through the massive gate as it silently slid open. At his direction, she turned left onto the road that ran outside the compound. This car can go from 0 to 60 in 3.6 seconds. Its top speed is 191 miles per hour, said Stuart. Why don't we see how far we can get? Unable to believe her ears, she jammed her foot on the gas pedal and began to drive as quickly as she could. She moved through the gears with Stuart's help, accepting his instruction on when to change up and down, and she took his advice on how fast to take the turns. Soon she was following signs that led to the A30. As they approached town, there was a sudden and unexpected delay caused by a man herding a hundred sheep across the road. Not long after they got past that, they ran into men picking up bricks that had fallen from the bed of a truck into the thoroughfare. So many had fallen it was impossible for her or any of the other two dozen waiting cars to drive over them. Driving on the shoulder to get past that, she drove only five more minutes before she encountered a large multi-car traffic accident. She saw men in white loading adults and children on stretchers into ambulances, police taking witness statements, and a body in an orange bag being loaded into a long black vehicle. Stuart said, well, that's enough fun. Please take the next left turn. Why? She asked. She was looking past the accident at what seemed to be very light traffic on the coastal road. There were signs pointing toward Plymouth and London dead ahead. She wouldn't give up her only chance of escape merely on Stuart's say-so. Ignoring the police officers who instructed her to stay in line and wait her turn to pass, she crossed to the wrong side of the road, narrowly avoided hitting an ambulance worker, raced toward the next high street intersection. Someone died in that accident, said Stuart. If we go too much further, things will start happening to the vehicle we are in, and it is one I rather like. So turn left up ahead. We'll get lunch at the pub, then we'll head back to do our duty. You really believe magic caused that accident? She demanded. Speeding past the turn he recommended she said, that's ridiculous. Even as she said the words, the vehicle they were traveling in was slammed hard on the right side by a tow truck seeking to make a U-turn across multiple lanes of traffic. Stuart was on the phone before the car they were in had skidded to a stop. We're about 500 feet from Branson's pub, he said conversationally. Please send someone out to deal with the police and what remains of the car. Stuart stepped out of the wreck then held his hand out for Mary to take. Mary, head spinning, tried to open her own door only to realize it was crushed and its airbag had deployed. With no other option, she allowed Stuart to help her wriggle out of the car on his side. Once out, she looked for someone she could ask for help. The police officers and ambulance were far away, and the driver of the truck had his back to the expensive car he had destroyed and the people he had almost killed. He was yelling into his phone. Stuart escorted Mary down the road toward an old pub. It was just a couple of hundreds yards away and it overlooked the water. Do you recall hearing about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle in school? Stuart asked. I am told those nuns gave you a first-rate education. Still dazed by the speed, power, and timing of the impact, Mary said, it's something about atoms. Something about electrons. It's impossible to predict where in an electron's orbit it will be found. There's a reason for that. Electrons don't have to stay in this universe. They pass between dimensions. Have you heard about quantum entanglement? What kind of entanglement? asked Mary. 
It is possible to entangle two particles such that a change in one will immediately change the other no matter how far apart they are, whether it's miles, or light years, or in another dimension, said Stewart. Something that happens very far away can have an effect here. He seemed completely at ease despite the fact both of them might have died just moments ago. Could he have manufactured this series of events? Could it all have been staged? Her mind reeled at the thought. Now, have you heard that light behaves as both a particle and a wave? When observed, light passing through a slot behaves like a particle. When no one is looking, it behaves like a wave, appearing to pass through the slot multiple times. Now let's talk about Schrodinger's cat. Why on earth are you talking about any of this? She demanded. We live in a universe connected at the subatomic level with other universes including the one in which Acheron and Our Lady normally reside. Acheron may not be able to directly enter this world without coming through me, but he can directly impact it by manipulating the energies in it. By this point they had come to the door to the pub. Stuart opened it and together they stepped inside its warmth and silence. Kate saw that the decor was predictably ship-like, with portals, shells, and starfish competing with brass and wood bar in the nautical blue carpet. Without waiting to be seated, Stuart led her to a table near the window that overlooked the late afternoon sea. They were the only two people in the place. Welcome, sir, said the rotund barkeep. It's been many a year since we had a trelevan here. How are the and thine on this fine day? Very well, said Stuart affably. We'll just have water to drink and whatever you recommend that we eat. We are in a bit of a rush. We've quite a plowman's lunch, offered the man. That would be ideal, said Stuart. He reached into his pocket for his wallet and the man waved him off. Now we'll have none of that. You know your money is no good here. Thank you, Tom. Please give my best to your father and brother. It's been too long since I've seen them, said Stuart. Every Friday like clockwork, the man replied with a smile. You can find them here with the darts and the drink. They know you here, she said when the man moved away. Of course, he said. Our families have been neighbors for a very long time. So you claim, she said without much conviction. You're a strange creature, he said. I don't even know who you are lying to at this point. Tom returned to place water, bread, cheese, sausage and scotch eggs on the table. Please call the police, she said to the man hopefully. The barkeep looked at Stuart who said wryly, please don't. The man nodded at Stuart, and without looking at Mary again he moved away. You aren't in any position to judge anyone, she said. You have done nothing but lie to me since the first day we met. If you say so, he said. Stuart then took an active interest in eating, apparently happy to leave her to think whatever she wished. Belatedly she decided she should consume some kind of nourishment since she had no idea what lay ahead. Stuart finished then watched her eat patiently. When she was through, he slid both plates aside. He rested his folded arms on the table and looked into her eyes. I have given some thought to trying to prepare you for the evening's activities. I was going to tell you what to expect. Now, however, I see you will just have to make your own way through the experience. And frankly I have no idea what will happen to you once it's over. She kept her face immobile, determined not to give him the satisfaction of knowing he was frightening her. Once the Dark Lord is incarnate, I'll have no influence over his acts, no more control over him than you have over Our Lady. So I don't know if you'll survive the night. You are threatening me, she said. Half an hour ago a tow truck tried to kill you, he replied. Your heart is hardened against Acheron against me, against the society. You are not a child and you won't be treated like one. You'll willingly honor your commitments or die. It is as simple as that. Here Stuart paused as if his next words were very hard for him to say. If I could release you from your role in the society's service to Acheron, even at the price of my own life, I swear I would. I cannot. Neither of us will be permitted to walk away. There is no way for me to protect you more than I have. Whether you live or die is entirely in your own hands. I hope you see that before it is too late. By the time he had finished speaking, Mary was looking past him. James and a somewhat pale Ahmed had entered and were waiting at the end of the bar. Driven back to the abbey in a black Rolls Royce, she sat silent beside Stuart. She wondered if his words could possibly be true. Was he too a prisoner here? 
allowed to command but not to escape? She couldn't believe that was true. Once in the underground parking lot, James and Ahmed let them both out of the car. Stuart followed her up the short flight of stairs into the house, then led her up the long flight of stairs to her bedroom. He sat her in the armchair near the fire, poured her a glass of water, and said, Stay here until they come for you. Do whatever you are told. Where are you going? she asked. You will see me again very soon, he said. If you simply do what you are told we will both be alive tomorrow. No one here wants to see you hurt. He said something else then, the words slipping past her like living things. Pure joy rushed through her. What did you say? she asked. I told Our Lady I will miss her greatly when she leaves us, but soon she will be free. Ahmed and James were already dressed in their robes, and their hair was wet, when they came for her. They were somber as if they were on their way to a funeral or an execution. Shall we drug you? Ahmed asked in something like a courteous way. Or will you simply condescend to do what we say? Remembering Stuart's words, Mary rose and allowed them to lead her to the bathing room. She could smell the steaming aromatic water as she entered. Undress, said Ahmed. Her shaking hands moved to unfasten her clothes almost of their own accord. She wanted this whole experience to be over. Whatever it took to make that happen she would do. Maybe she should accept their offer to sedate her. Would that make it all easier? But she couldn't bear the thought of not knowing what had happened to her when it was all over. When she was naked, standing like a statue before them, neither man looked at her. Please step into the water, said James. Once again, she complied, submerging herself completely. When she held out her hand for a towel, one was thrust into her hands. Without waiting for instruction, she walked out of the bath and let them quickly towel her dry. A moment later, to her surprise, Ahmed knelt at her feet. He poured thick oil from a brown bottle into his hands, then applied it to her legs. In a matter of minutes, with help from James, she was covered in a scent that was overwhelmingly familiar. It carried a poignant memory of open fields and wooded places. Their hands swept over her breasts, slipped between her thighs, crossed her face. It was all done swiftly, silently, professionally. Then they stepped away. Let's go, said Ahmed. Mary thought he sounded weary and sad. The men led her out of the room, down the hall, and once again the thick, iron-studded door was opened, a gaping maw into which she must descend. Ahmed and James threw their hoods forward. James scooped her into his arms. The men navigated the staircase quickly, moved through the invisible gates with assurance. They entered the underground cathedral. This time a single hanging censer was positioned over the slab. Seeing it reminded her of the last time she had lain there, the monster she had seen. As a child she had not been afraid of Acheron, as a woman she found him terrifying. James laid her back against the cold stone. She felt Ahmed clamp something over her ankle, heard the rattle of chains as she stirred. Seconds later she was chained to the slab by both her hands and feet. I don't want to do this, she managed to say as Ahmed moved close. Please just let me go. Hush, he answered softly. She could make out his face under the hood and their eyes met. James took up the arm that still wore the gold bracelet. He opened her hand to expose the palm. Ahmed blocked her view of the hand and a moment later steel bit deep into her flesh. She gasped. For what seemed like forever they held her hand still as she tried to pull it away. Eventually Ahmed slid something soft and round into her hand, and closed her fingers over it to make a fist. As they moved away she saw they carried a golden goblet filled to the brim with her blood. The softness in her hand was a thick roll of white gauze. The echo of a large bell filled the chamber. Mary watched robed figures enter the sanctuary carrying torches. Between the two rows of five men she saw Stuart. He was naked, firelight flickering across his broad chest, painting his muscular thighs and long legs with light and shadow. The men formed a circle before the altar, planting their tall torches in silver-rimmed holes in the floor. Ahmed, James and Stuart stood on the steps with their backs to her. Ahmed gave Stuart the goblet. He drank from it then handed it to James who followed suit. The goblet passed around the circle, from man to man. Ahmed took the last draft, then turned to place the goblet on the step beneath the altar. Stuart stepped to the middle of the circle, James and Ahmed reached under the altar and when she saw what they held in her hands she gasped. They stepped down off the altar and, acting in unison, 
plunged the twin blades deep into his back, dragged them down through muscle and skin to his buttocks. Back to her, Stuart struggled to stand as his blood ran in rivers down his back and legs to pool on the floor under his feet. He dropped to his knees and turned his head so he could see her. She could almost hear him saying, we all have our more unpleasant duties to perform. The blood sliding down his back began to blacken. The wounds in his back began to stretch horrifically. As she watched, bones unfurled like insect legs from inside him. Skin stretched from his back along the bony spines, swiftly forming dark leathery wings. The creature, no longer Stuart, rose and turned. She was staring into a beautiful, terrifying, face she had made with her own hands not so long ago. Acheron was a childhood dream turned into a living nightmare. In a single bound the demon was on the altar over her, wings stretched wide to shroud them. She turned her head, trying to arc her body away from him. She felt his teeth sink into her exposed throat. In that instant her body caught fire and she saw all Our Lady saw. Acheron had been drawn into the body the goddess had made thirty years ago. She obligingly made the two into one. Her brother could now walk between worlds as he and his mortal minions desired. His purpose served, Acheron jerked the trap that tied his sister to this world from Mary's arm. It fell to the marble floor and shattered like glass. The goddess, free at last, surged up and away, leaping with joy through solid rock into a starry sky. Acheron followed his sister's motion as far as he could, rising with a single wing beat into the flickering light that filled the sanctuary. Then he gracefully felt to sit on his throne which had been hidden in the darkness on the far side of the vast underground cathedral. At a wave of Acheron's hands, fire sprang from all the censers in the room. In the now brilliantly lit chamber, Mary saw all the characters in her tarot cards and all the faces that had ever sprung from her hands. They were all alive in this place. They shifted on the tile floor, crawled up the columns, stared down from golden relief from the ceiling. Where the Acheron sat, stone cherubs cavorted above him and gargoyles writhed below. This temple resonated with the immortals alive in another plane. Feeling the blood that coated her body, that still ebbed from the wounds on her neck, Mary wondered if she was hallucinating. Could this be real? How could stone come alive? She watched Acheron's human servants kneel before him one by one. He inclined his head to listen to them, then he would speak, then they would rise and back away. At last Mary and the deity were alone. Acheron left his throne and strode to her. He examined her, seeking defects, then he moved forward to touch a point between her breasts. Her heart stopped. An instant became an eternity as her body cried out for oxygen. Would this be the last thing she ever saw? This dark shrine and this fallen angel who demanded so much from his servants. As the ache in her chest became agony and she felt numbness crawling up her limbs, he spoke in inhuman harmonies. It was this that made her believe he was an angel. He had such a beautiful voice. You will no more betray me. Chapter 21 When Mary woke up, she was being carried through the darkness. As she passed through the massive door at the end of the upper hall, she saw she was in Stuart's arms and she let her head rest against his chest. He carried her past her bedroom and opened the door next to it along the hall. She found herself in a dark paneled bedroom, one much larger than the one she had been in before, with an ornate gold bed that was truly fit for a king. He lay her on the bed and then disappeared, only to return seconds later with Ahmed and James. Silent, Stuart lifted her again. They threw back the blankets to expose the sheets, placed warm towels on the bed, then Stuart lay her on them. Together Ahmed and James gently examined and washed her body, carefully exploring the seeping wounds at her neck. Applying ointments and bandages carefully, they avoided meeting her eyes. Finally they put a pillow under her head and covered her with the heavy blankets. What's to become of her now? James asked. She's alive for the time being, said Stuart, sounding tired. Perhaps he will allow her to serve her purpose. Time will tell. The wounds are far deeper and more savage than described in the texts, said Ahmed as he returned Gaza, salves, and alcohol to his bag. She could use some stitches and a little plastic surgery if we want to avoid a scar. That won't be necessary. He intends it as a memento, said Stuart. Get to bed. We have much to do in the morning. Without a word to Mary. The two men obediently left the room. Stuart locked the door behind them, then went into the bathroom. Mary heard the shower run and struggled to sit up. Shaking, 
She went into the bathroom and sank to the floor. She watched Stuart wash through the clear glass of the perfectly square shower stall. She saw his back now featured long, angry red scars that ran from shoulder to buttock. Stuart stepped out of the shower and toweled himself dry. Pulling on white pajama bottoms he looked down at her. Believe in magic yet? He asked her. He knelt down and raised her up, then he pulled her into his arms and held her close as he stroked her hair. She melted into him, unable to believe he wasn't dead. She had seen the long knives plunge deep into him and the blood pour out of him. She had seen him become something else. Everything he had ever said to her, every single word, had been true. He had remained at her side, had worked hard to protect her, though she had fought him every step of the way. And all the while the sacrifice demanded of him had dwarfed what Acheron demanded of her. The deity, the demon, who now chaired his body could wrench him out of it at will. From this day forward Stuart would be merely a guest in a body he used to own. Was there a more brutal and complete form of slavery? Stuart's gentle hand tilted her head back and his lips came to hers. The hundred times he had visited her in dreams had been a prelude to this moment, this surrender. He lifted her up, carried her back to the bed, where he made love to her until she cried out. As ecstasy took them both, she felt the echo of the goddess and her leap into eternity. I make souls flesh, she found herself thinking. I can weave spirits into body and bone. You fear me less and fear me more when I wear my servant's face, Acheron said in the language of angels. Stuart's face was grotesquely stretched to express Acheron's satisfaction and conquest however the eyes in his head belonged to Acheron alone. At some point during their lovemaking, he had slid into his servant and Mary could not have said when. Mary shook her head in mute denial. How could she not fear the terrifying creature she had once called her orphaned friend? He was immortal and he commanded forces she could hardly imagine. He had bred her for this terrible purpose, stalked her since childhood, and had used women like her generation after generation to bring himself into the world. He had proven himself to be a monster in every sense of the word. But there was nothing this demon could ask her to do now that she would not surrender to in a heartbeat. Now she understood, in disobedience she would only find death. Acheron would simply kill her and find another woman to carry the next generation he needed to remain in the world. Only in submission she could remain close to Stuart, bound to him. She must survive or he would be completely alone in his subjugation. She would survive, she vowed as she stared up into Acheron's golden eyes, so she could find a way to free them both from the demon king. The End Recording and Story Copyright 2020 by Nancy Fulton. All rights reserved. Music created by D. Kurtzman and licensed from Pond5. Find more great stories at audioiron.com.